Hey, welcome to Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We're Carly and Zach, and we're so glad you're here with us today. So today we have the Queen and Mavanga, which is hands down my absolute favorite decision I read in law school, even though it's only 13 decisions long, or 13 paragraphs long, rather. And it was written by our beloved Justice Pomerantz here in Windsor, where we both are. So did you read this decision, Zach, uh, as a student during law school? I did. I also read it in my first year in Professor Tanovich's 1L class. And I remember at the time, for some reason in law school, I noticed that we actually went over a couple big decisions that are from Windsor. I remember this being one of them. (laughs) And there was one that we did in um, international criminal law as well. So it's yeah. always fun to get these little Windsor plugs in. And then I eventually had Justice Pomerantz as a professor in her amazing. Criminal on the Charter class, which was amazing. If there's any I Windsor students imagine. listening, <laughs> please take that class. And yeah. if you're interested in criminal law or charter law generally, you will learn so much. We are definitely stands for Justice Pomerantz as a professor, 100%. <laughs> Absolutely. She's oh, so much knowledge. It's, it's great to be able to learn from somebody like that. Amazing. So I am an ex-medievalist in a former life. And so I studied art history in my undergrad. And so that was what initially drew me to this decision because on a 276 application to, um, or sorry, not on a 276, on a jury address on a, in a yeah. sexual assault case, uh, the defense tried to introduce a Botticelli painting called the Calumny of Apelles. Um, as evidence, uh, sort of showing the historic, um, sort of how false accusations have run throughout history. And uh, Justice Pomerantz very politely uh, declines to let the defense um, introduce the painting. And it has some of the most truly amazing, like witty one-liners in any law decision I've ever read. It is honestly a treat to read every time I read it. Yeah, and I was glad you you decided to do this because I hadn't read it since 1L and just reviewing some of Justice Pomerantz's comments, the way they're written not only translates really well off the page, but they also paint, a, they do a very good job of painting an image in your mind of why this argument doesn't work and why introducing a painting as defense evidence isn't a good idea, especially a medieval painting like this yeah. where... I'll let you explain why it yeah, is the no. way it so, is. So it does a thing that lots of um, like late medieval, uh, early modern paintings, uh, Botticelli is from Florence, he's Florentine. So it does a thing that a lot of these paintings do where they have women as the personification of a concept. So it's super common. It happened in ancient Greek paintings a lot too, which is why Botticelli paints it. They are obsessed with the ancient world. And so you have like women as a liar, women as the truth, women as deceit. So uh, in a sexual assault case where um, it's a male accused and a female victim, Justice Pomerantz felt it would be kind of inappropriate to have a big giant picture with these personifications, you know, women as liar. Defense counsel argue that, you know, well, I could explain it so that the gender is sort of taken out of it and we don't have to worry about it. And, you know, Justice Pomerantz, to her credit, was, you know, very kind in her decision and said, you know, I trust you wouldn't do any of this on purpose, but we can't ignore that these types of images exist and that they can be harmful and very, very prejudicial, especially with a jury. So they declined to allow the painting. It's a 
it's a nice painting. I mean, it's not my favorite Botticelli, but it's a nice painting. And it's it's always funny to think. So I have like next to no art history or art knowledge outside of what I learned in high school and the tiny toy soldiers I paint in my free time. So it's always interesting to me when two kind of very different aspects merge. In this case, like art history and law, because this isn't this is kind of like a novel case, right? This isn't oh, a yeah. very common thing. No, yeah, they're not counsel. introducing paintings. Yeah. <laughs> They don't frequently introduce, you know, late medievalist, early yeah, Renaissance no. style paintings into Doesn't into come up evidence. that much, you know. <laughs> so I'm always for the the novel and one-off decisions or, you know. Yeah. I will give it to defense counsel. I can see that there was an attempt being made. While yeah. I may disagree with that strategy personally, Yeah. I can again recognize the the intuitive push, I guess. Oh, yeah. No, I mean... I have a master's degree in medieval architecture. Whenever anybody uses their, like, not that all life applicable degree to try to actually, like, do their job in a productive way, like, he was just using every argument he could to try to advance the position of his client, which is exactly what he's supposed to do. It just ended up with this truly amazing decision that I find delightful every time I read it. So definitely, definitely. Hope you guys enjoy. The Queen and Mavanga. Mr. Mavanga is charged with three counts of sexual assault. The central issue to be determined by the jury is whether the complainant consented to the sexual activity. The complainant testified that the accused forcibly attacked her on three occasions. The accused testified that the sexual activity took place within the context of an extramarital affair and that the complainant not only consented to, but initiated the sexual activity. Counsel for the accused, Mr. Monroe, wishes to use a visual prop during his closing address to the jury. He wishes to present the jury with Columnia of Apelles, a painting by Sandro Botticelli believed to date back to 1494. As I understand his argument, Mr. Monroe wishes to present the painting to the jury as an allegory. He wishes to make the point that the theme of false accusation is not the exclusive invention of criminal defense lawyers. Rather, this, quote, dark side of human nature, end quote, has been depicted in historical works of art and literature. To this end, he wishes to present the jury with a copy of the painting Calumny of Apelles and tell them the underlying story. It is said that Botticelli based his work on a painting done by the classical Greek artist Apelles. Legend has it that Apelles produced the painting because he was unjustly slandered by a jealous artistic rival, Antiphilos, who accused him in front of the gullible king of Egypt, Ptolemy, of being an accomplice in a conspiracy. After Apelles was proven to be innocent, He dealt with his rage and desire for revenge by painting the picture which served as inspiration for Botticelli's work. The images in the Botticelli painting have been described as follows. On the right of it sits a man with very large ears, almost like those of Midas, extending his hand to slander while she is still at some distance from him. Near him on one side stand two women, ignorance and suspicion. On the other side, slander is coming up, a woman beautiful beyond measure, but full of malignant passion and excitement, evincing as she does fury and wrath by carrying in her left hand a blazing torch, 
and with the other dragging by the hair a young man who stretches out his hands to heaven and calls the gods to witness his innocence. She is conducted by a pale ugly man who has piercing eyes and looks as if he has wasted away in long illness. He represents envy. There are two women in attendance to slander. One is fraud and the other conspiracy. They are followed by a woman dressed in deep mourning with black clothes, all in tatters. She is repentance. At all events, she is turning back with tears in her eyes and casting a stealthy glance full of shame at Truth, who is slowly approaching. While this painting is of great interest to art historians and other scholars, I find that it has no place in a modern Canadian criminal trial. I accept that the right of the defense to address the jury is fundamental to a fair trial. In the Queen in Gesquet, the Court of Appeal for Ontario directed a new trial on the basis of a defense closing that, quote, crossed the line from enthusiastic advocacy to inflammatory rhetoric, end quote. In that case, the court ruled that the use of hyperbole and insinuation in the defense closing adversely affected the fairness of trial. While in Gesquet, the issue was the fair trial of a co-accused, trials must also be fair when viewed from the societal perspective. Defense evidence may be excluded where it has the potential to distort or undermine the integrity of the fact-finding process. A defense argument in a closing address may be ruled impermissible on the same basis. In his argument, Mr. Munro stressed that he does not wish to use the painting to promote any offensive or stereotypical notions of female complainants. I accept this assertion. I also accept that Mr. Monroe will try to minimize prejudicial impact of the painting by telling the jury that it should disregard the gender of the figures portrayed in the artwork. Mr. Monroe wishes to use the painting as the striking and memorable tool of persuasion. The difficulty is that the very features that make the painting striking and memorable are the features that make it inflammatory. The painting depicts women as symbolic representations of slander, ignorance, suspicion, fraud, conspiracy, and repentance. These women are turning their back on truth, who is also depicted as a woman, but appears in naked form. The accused individual is seen as an innocent young man being dragged by the hair towards the king. Ignorance and suspicion, two women, are whispering into the king's ear, which are depicted as the ears of a donkey, in an effort to corrupt the decision maker. Against these graphic images, asking the jury to disregard depictions of gender is like asking Mrs. Lincoln whether, aside from everything else, she enjoyed the play. It is impossible to divorce gender from the images depicted by Botticelli, and it is impossible to divorce the images from the artwork. If the images are truly beside the point, then they should not be presented. To have them placed before the jury is to risk undermining the integrity of the fact-finding process. The concern is that the painting will resurrect offensive myths and stereotypes that have in the past tarnished trials of sexual offenses. Since the 1980s, Parliament and the courts have taken active steps to exercise these pernicious myths from the criminal law. The painting's depiction of women as false accusers and corruptors of the decision maker harkens back to a time when corroboration of a sexual assault complainant was a legal requirement. The rules of recent complaint were in force, and evidence of the complainant's sexual history was freely admitted. Fortunately, the law has progressed well beyond this point, ridding itself of rules based on an inherent distrust of sexual assault complainants. The modern fact-finder is to base its findings on the evidence adduced at trial, rather than offensive stereotypes. The inflammatory images in the Botticelli painting 
do little to advance the objective, impartial, and gender-neutral approach to fact-finding that our law now requires. Myths cloaked in artistic imagery are still myths, and perhaps all the more dangerous for their aesthetic legitimacy. In short, I find that the painting conveys messages that are inappropriate in the context of a criminal jury trial. To suggest that life imitates art is, at least in this context, a dangerous proposition. The potential for prejudice and distortion of the fact-finding process substantially outweighs the potential for legitimate persuasive impact. In the result, counsel for the accused may not present the Botticelli painting during the closing address to the jury. Legal Listening is founded by Zach Battiston and Carly Lyons. Hosted by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and you, our listeners. Executive produced by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and Anthony Rademile. Audio engineering by Anthony Rademile. Graphic design by Julie Lundy at julielundyart.com. Music by Matt Rademile at radandkel.com. We're always open to ideas, suggestions, and of course, guest readers. Check us out at Legal Listening on Twitter and at LegalListening.com. We'll talk to you next time.